There's nothing like a long walk for helping you think. So let's take one. 138 years due north into the New York of the newly arrived Louis Le Prince and John Whitley. Past the docks and Battery Park, Le Prince and John Whitley would have been faced with Broadway. So let's take a route up through town that these two would have come to know, taking us up to Union Square, where Whitley established a showroom for Lincruster Walton, the new wallpaper process he aimed to sell to the new world. And let us take as our guide the book New York by Sunlight and Gaslight, a work descriptive of the great American metropolis, published in 1882, just months after Le Prince and Whitley's arrival. It will accompany us up past the parks and offices and shops, workshops, statues, churches and department stores, as we weave past the carriages and horse-drawn omnibuses up through the autumn heat to try and understand why the two voyages had come here and how the city would come to shape them and their respective paths in the years to come. The Shadow Traps, Episode 13, The Mirrors of New York To the dweller in New York, Broadway is what the boulevards are to the Parisian. It is the centre of life, gaiety and business, the great artery through which flows a strong life current of the metropolis. From the Bowling Green to the Central Park, a distance of five miles, it is lined with stately edifices and thronged with an endless crowd of busy workers, restless pleasure-seekers, the good and the bad, the grave and the gay, all hurrying on in eager pursuit of the objects before them. To the stranger, it is the great show street of the city, and certainly no more wonderful sight can be witnessed than this grand thoroughfare at high noon. The history of the street is the history of the city. It has grown steadily with it, shared its vicissitudes and good fortune, and, like a mirror, has reflected every phase of the wonderful progress of New York. A stroll along Broadway, we mean along its entire length, is one of the most interesting occupations to which the stranger of New York can devote himself. It requires considerable leg power, for the distance is a good five miles. But the scene is so full of interest, and there is so much to divert one's thoughts from fatigue, that we invite the reader to accompany us. We are taken further. Leaving Battery Park and going north, Broadway takes us through Bowling Green and the headquarters of the European steamship lines, past Wall Street, Trinity Church, the Western Union Telegraph Company, the offices of the Evening Post and the New York Herald, Astor House Hotel and City Hall, 
near the intersection of Broadway and Park Row, where nothing in the street life of New York is more striking than the scene before us. From morning till night, there moves by an ever-changing procession of vehicles that have poured into the great artery from a thousand tributaries and to cross Broadway at times at this spot one must needs be a sort of animated billiard ball with power to corrom from wheel to wheel until he can safely pocket corporacity on the opposite walk. The crush of vehicles here is sometimes so great as to delay movement for ten minutes or more and it requires the greatest energy on the part of the police to disentangle the dense, chaotic mass and set it in progress again. For those who are not obliged to cross a choked-up thoroughfare, the scene is full of a brief amusement. Hack drivers, truckmen, omnibus drivers swearing vehemently at each other or interchanging all kinds of chaff. Passengers indignantly railing at the delay and police officers yelling and waving their clubs. Eventually, we reach Union Square, where Whitley's showroom was situated at number 41 on the corner of 17th Street. Union Square lies between Broadway and 4th Avenue and extends from 14th to 17th Streets. It is about three and a half acres in extent and contains a number of fine shade trees. In the centre is a handsome ornamental fountain and flowers and shrubbery give to the place an air of beauty in the spring and summer. A broad plaza borders the square on the northern side along 17th Street and here is arranged a long row of ornamental gas lamps which on special occasions illuminate the square. Along the southern border of 14th Street side are statues of Washington, Lafayette and Lincoln. Union Square lies in the centre of one of the busiest and brightest portions of New York. Broadway sweeps around it with its rows of magnificent buildings and the 14th Street and 4th Avenue sides rival the great thoroughfare in their great edifices. The southeast corner of Broadway and 4th Street is marked by the Union Place Hotel, next door to which is a Union Square Theatre and immediately opposite, across Broadway, towers the superb iron building of the Domestic Sewing Machine Company. On the east side, facing on 4th Avenue, are the Union Square and Clarendon Hotels. The Everett House faces the square on 17th Street, and on Broadway are Tiffany's and several of the finest stores in the city. Everything is bright and lively. Crowds line the sidewalks of the streets surrounding the square and pour along its broad walks by day and night. And after nightfall, the dazzling rays of the electric lights illuminate the pretty grounds with a brilliancy almost equal to that of the day. Several of the leading places of amusement are in close proximity to Union Square and this causes it to be thronged until a late hour of the night. The neighbourhood is also a favourite rendezvous with the members of the theatrical profession to whom that portion of 14th Street opposite the Washington statue is known as the slave market 
in consequence of the large number of actors always to be found hanging around there in summer looking for engagements. Broadway was where the visual entrepreneurs of New York were concentrated. They worked with daguerreotypes, stereographs, lithographs, printing presses. They worked in the theatres, the museums. They designed wallpaper and window-dressed shopfronts. They were looking for new and better and more profitable ways of viewing and of portraying the city. Visual entrepreneurs of all stripes were finding ways of capturing and creating spectacles in New York. Several years before Le Prince and Whitley had arrived, P.T. Barnum's American Museum had stood at the intersection of Broadway and Ann Street. It was a heady, legendary mix of science, pseudoscience, spectacle, hype, hucksterism and showmanship. Vulgar and voyeuristic, with a mere sheen of moral endeavour, the five-storey building contained a zoo, museum, theatre and lecture hall, dioramas, panoramas, cosmoramas and freak shows, scientific instruments and flea circuses, morality plays and mermaid skeletons, magicians and phrenologists, ventriloquists, taxidermists and black-faced minstrels, and much, much more. Barnum had managed to create a spectacle that drew in both the middle and working classes. But in 1865, in one of the most spectacular fires that New York had ever witnessed, the museum burnt to the ground. Many of the animals exhibited died, including two whales boiled to death in their tanks. The museum moved just a few blocks away on the corner of Felton Street, until that too burnt down in 1868. Nevertheless, Barnum had created a type of middle-brow entertainment that would only grow and spread and shape the city's more spectacular amusements. I mention all this, and the word spectacle again and again, I suppose, for several reasons, not least because I have grown to see John Robinson Whitley as a kind of industrial P.T. Barnum with his own brand of hype, hard work and ambition and a creator of his own types of spectacle. In the weeks to come, we'll see exactly what Whitley did that reminds me so much of Barnum and I wonder how much of the American showman influenced him and whether the presence of the American Museum had somehow remained in the ether on Broadway to be breathed in by the enigmatic Yorkshireman. Broadway in 1881 was an opportune place and time for another reason. It was where John Whitley's target market congregated. The middle class was growing alongside the shops and small manufactories from which so many had made their increasingly comfortable livings. And they poured through Broadway, looking to spend some of it on tasteful, stylish but affordable goods and furnishings. Whitley's showroom must have fit right into the neighbourhood. 
all of Broadway, it seemed, was a showroom of some kind. Visitors to public commercial spaces, such as hotel lobbies, restaurants and shops, were exposed to inspiring decorative ideas at every turn. For instance, in Matthew Brady's daguerreotype studio and gallery on Broadway, those coming to have their portraits taken would be seated in the giant reception room, a plush, luxuriously furnished parlour with red velvet carpets and fresco ceiling with chandelier. Visitors were as likely to admire the rosewood furnishings as they were the portraits hanging on the walls around them. Incidentally, by the mid-19th century, there were more daguerreotype studios in New York than there were in all of England. Daguerreotypes remained hugely popular. However, there was a newer technology around Broadway at that time that would have caught the prince's eye as well, and that was the stereoscope. As we've seen in previous episodes, stereoscopic cameras took photographs in relief, in other words, in 3D. 3D photography was based in large part on the scientific discoveries made in the early part of the 19th century by Charles Wheatstone and Sir David Brewster, whose research into optical illusions provided so much of the understanding of human vision that became the foundations of photography and motion pictures. Wheatstone and Brewster had perceived a difference in the viewing angles in a pair of eyes. Each eye basically saw something slightly different to the other as they were seeing things from slightly different positions. This was retinal disparity and it was dealt with by the brain by merging the two views together. And so, to replicate this, stereo photography used twin lens cameras, each lens about two inches apart, or in other words, set out at a similar distance to one another as a pair of eyes. Two photographs were taken at exactly the same time of the same thing, but from two different angles. Now, to view these back, the important thing was for the left eye to see only one image and the right eye to see only the other, so that the brain would be able to merge them together in relief. One of the most popular stereoscope viewers was the Holmes Bates stereoscope. Now, how to describe this? Imagine a Venetian mask held up to the face with a handle. Now, replace the actual delicately gilded mask with what looks more like a welder's goggles. Protruding out in front of that is a thin piece of wood which holds up the images to be looked at at a few inches away from the eyes. Blinders around the eyepieces of the viewer keep out the light and the photographs can be moved about with a sliding holder to adjust position based on each individual's eyesight. Each eye's field of vision is isolated so that each eye sees a different image. Now these were hugely popular. By 1873, for example, Anthony and Co. on Broadway had over 11,000 stereo views for sale. Now we have already taken a walk through town, seen its busy roads lined with multi-storey buildings. These landscapes, modern and urban, suited stereoscopic photography, offering as they did in their angular vistas perspective lines 
that pointed towards obscured horizons. The slew of carriages or people or buildings, objects placed or moving in lines, helped the viewer's sense of depth as roads tapered off into the distance. Pictures that looked up and down Broadway were popular. For example, Broadway on a Rainy Day, produced in 1859 by Edwards and Henry Anthony. In it, the road cuts across the frame in a slight diagonal line, disappearing into the crowds in the background. The street glistens with rain, and dark umbrellas spot the sidewalk. It reminds me of the views of Leeds, Liverpool and London, painted by John Atkinson Grimshaw. It reminds me of something else, of a film that would be shot in Leeds seven years after Le Prince first arrived in New York. It makes me wonder how much Broadway, Union Square, New York, pushed and bustled its way into the imaginations of Whitley and Le Prince. It makes me wonder if stereoscopes and indeed daguerreotypes and lithographs of Broadway would influence a film shot on Leeds Bridge in 1888, which would replicate exquisitely those types of angles and lines seen in these images of Broadway. New York at the end of the 19th century was a city transforming itself in haste and with vigour. The tip of Manhattan, once described as a poor copy of Victorian London, and the areas around Union and Madison Squares, once described as a poor copy of Paris, were being made modern, were becoming new New York. Bounded by overhead railway lines and dazzled by the electric lighting of Thomas Edison, this place swaggered and grew, and as it did so, it captured itself daily with thousands of images. Photographs, mirrors with memory, showed the city back to itself. And while we know very little about the day-to-day -day lives of Whitley and the Prince here in New York in 1881, we can at least come to know the street and the square where they worked. The actor-writer Bruce Robinson, who wrote the classic film With Nail and I, recently published a book on Jack the Ripper entitled They All Love Jack, after spending 15 years researching the subject. I don't want to glamorise in any way the story of the Ripper, which is a story simply of sexual violence and murder. However, I was fascinated with Robinson's approach, which was to name his suspect fairly early on and to, to use his book as a passionate indictment of the societal and religious systems in place that allowed the Ripper to remain unpunished. Anyway, when discussing his book, Robinson said this, I couldn't look at the Ripper because the Ripper was hidden, but I could look at the police and I could look at the way the police were reacting. And I found that that resonated with an approach taken in an earlier episode of The Shadow Traps where we sought to find the outlines of our subjects, examining the indirect and obtuse to try and ascertain the shape of things. And it encourages us to use what we've learned of New York to ask certain questions. 
The Lincoln Walton showroom at 41 Union Square was obviously a prime location that was surrounded by innovative, successful, fashionable businesses, hotels and restaurants and visited by the well-to-do of New York. How did they afford this location? How had Whitley made his money since his ignominious withdrawal from Whitley Partners in the 1870s? Had he made money? Had it come from Frederick Walton, the inventor of Lincrusta Walton? It seems that Whitley obtained a licence to sell the wallpaper covering, which wouldn't, I think, have involved the licence holder, Walton, putting up money for the licensee. Had Le Prince got this kind of money? If so, why hadn't he paid off his loan to George Nelson in Leeds? Had Whitley and Le Prince got credit from somewhere? Had Whitley used his charisma and powers of persuasion to obtain a favour from someone somehow? We have lost sight of our two main characters in the crowd at this moment, but we will be able to get to know the streets and the crowds well enough before too long. An article, or more to the point, a puff piece with Whitley's hand quite possibly behind it, appeared in a New York paper proclaiming that among the art exhibits now to be seen in New York, that of the Lincruster is perhaps the most attractive. Specimens of the material have been imported from London and Paris and here shown in situ and have elicited the admiration of all who have visited the rooms. The material is not yet for sale and the exhibit has been made merely to show the public the wonderful effects of this beautiful material by Mr John R. Whitley. And Whitley enlisted the services of a solicitor in New York, Clarence Seward, who would himself contribute a few choice quotations to promote Lincoster. I think it is the most really valuable and attractive article for that purpose that has ever been introduced into this country, and I believe in the success of this enterprise. Our friend, Mr Delmonico, has had his café adorned with it, and I propose to have my library similarly beautified. Delmonico's, incidentally, would have been the famous Delmonico restaurant, whose patrons included Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, Oscar Wilde, Nikola Tesla and Napoleon III. It would itself have acted as a perfect showroom for Whitley's new venture. Considering the location, the material, the reviews, things must have seemed promising, to say the very least. What could possibly go wrong? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Shadow Traps. If you'd like to learn more about the project or to support it, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash The Shadow Traps. Thank you very much for listening.